Can you hear me? Is it recording? Yeah, I think so. Okay, all right. This story is told by Frederick Schott. I go by the name Fred. He's a writer and a translator and was born in Washington. Uh, I grew up overseas. In Norway, Australia, and Japan. Written eight or nine books all about uh, Japan. And I've also done a lot of uh, translation of Japanese. Uh, some novels and a lot of comic books and things like that. Yeah, that's me. About 30 years ago, he was working on his new book. Uh, I was writing a book about the relationship between the United States and Japan. Japan had been completely cut off from the rest of the world since 1639. They were afraid, especially of Christian missionaries. For around 200 years, there was almost no contact and no trade with other countries. So it was a, a place that many foreigners were very curious about because nobody could go there. And when I was doing research for that book, I came across a mention in, in another book um, about Ronald McDonald. Fred reads about Ronald McDonald, a man who was from the northwest of America and in 1848 actually set foot in Japan. And then I thought, this is such an interesting story. It's such an interesting person. This is amazing. Ronald, he's 24 years old and he figures out a way to go to Japan alone. It would be like us today if you decided you're going to go to the moon. It would be like that. There was no way to get there. The people who went to Japan were American sailors who were shipwrecked. And the shipwrecked sailors usually didn't want to be in Japan. wanted to go home because you would be captured and you'd be thrown in jail. And if you were lucky, you at some point you might be deported. But Ronald actually wanted to be there and went there. I just became obsessed with learning more about him because his story seemed to me so amazing and so important. How did he do that? You know, how did he think of that? Why did he think of that? Why did he go? I had so many questions. So I, uh, I spent uh, over 10 years, about 12 years, doing research on him. Uh, he's kind of a hero to me. So here's the story of Ronald McDonald, told by Fred Schott. Uh, he was born in 1824, right near the ocean. It's actually right on the Columbia River. In the area where he was born, there were no real towns. There was just a fort, which was controlled by the Hudson's Bay Company, which was a giant uh, corporation like the Dutch East Indies Company. And Ronald McDonald's father was an officer at the Hudson's Bay Company. His father was actually Scottish with a name like MacDonald, you know, that's a Scottish name. And then there were uh, several Native American tribes in the area, and they had uh, little villages. They made very sophisticated canoes, and they traded among Native Americans, so they were very powerful. And the most powerful tribe was the Chinook. Uh, the Hudson's Bay Company was authorized by England to trade especially with native tribes, to get fur for coats and hats and so forth that were very popular in Europe then. But there were almost no white people in the area other than officers of the Hudson's Bay Company. And many of them had Native American wives. 
And Ronald McDonald's father, he was married to this daughter of Chief Comcomly. His hair was a little bit curly. Uh, he would have had black hair. You can see that he's part Indian. When he was a boy, he was probably very happy. He was very adventuresome and he was very healthy. At that time, there were shipwrecked Japanese sailors uh, that had been shipwrecked in the state of Washington. And Ranald, um, I don't think he actually met them, but he knew about them and he heard stories about them. And he would have heard stories about Japan because it was always a dream of traders in those days to establish relations with Japan. And then when he got older, his father sent him to this school in a community called Red River, which was mainly for the children of Hudson's Bay Company officers. They would have had Native American mothers, so they would have been what were called uh, Metis. He lived in a community there where nearly everyone was essentially, um, they were mixed race. The further east you went in those days, the worse the racism was. So when he arrived in St. Thomas, a town further east, he was apprenticed to a banker in the town. It's a very different culture. And uh, there, I think life probably would have been much more difficult for him. We know that he was unhappy. And he basically dropped out of his apprenticeship and he uh, left and he struck out on his own and he wound up going to sea, getting on a sailing ship or a whaling ship near New York today. On a whaling ship, the sailors would have been catching whales. Uh, the whaling industry uh, in the United States was very diverse. If they knew the person could do a really good job, they would hire them. They could be Hawaiians, or they could be Samoans. So a lot of the problems that exist in American society regarding race were not an issue. He would have been almost maybe 22, 21 when he joined the whale industry. And it was a very exciting job. You could possibly earn a lot of money you possibly also lose your life because it was very, very dangerous. You have to go out in a little boat to catch the whale, not the big boat. And then you'd have a crew of people who would row as fast as they can. And they would get to the area where they had seen the whale spout. They come to the surface. And then they would wait there until the whale surfaced again. And then they would try and harpoon the whale with a long, like a spear, a harpoon. They had discovered a wonderful whaling spot near Japan. At this time, uh, there was an intense interest in Japan among sailors. Uh, who were working in and out of Hawaii, many of the whalers thought that they could be executed if they landed in Japan. And Ranald would have heard a lot of information about Japan. And I think at some point, he, when he was in Hawaii, he probably got the idea that he would try to go to Japan and try to enter it. 
even though he knew that he could be executed. He had a skill that most of the sailors did not have. He knew how to navigate, and he made a deal with the captain of his ship. He said, when we are near Japan, when we are in this area, and he specified the area, he said, I want you to let me off the ship with a whaling boat, a small boat, and I want food, and I want to go into Japan alone. And why did he want to go to Japan? You know, that that's one of the big mysteries. And uh, there are many different theories. Uh, he says it was for adventure. And he probably wanted to become something like his father. Uh, and he thought that this would be a way to do it. I not only asked Fred this question, but I asked others who are friends of Fred and are also fascinated by the story. This is Michi from Japan. I don't know why he wanted to come to Japan, but I am sure he felt himself a little different. So he was looking for some place that he feels comfortable. And this is Alice and Masaru from Oregon. Masaru was born in Japan, but moved to the United States 19 years ago. This is their idea of Reynolds' motive. We had a huge earthquake and tsunami nine years ago in Japan. And about 14 months later, many things washed ashore of Oregon. Pieces of boats, you know, personal items and so forth. So this has been going on for a really long time. That's right. So what Alice and Moss are saying is that there's a connection between Japan and the Native Americans. Reynold McDonald's family. Because of the ocean currents coming over, this this continues to happen. And uh, Ronald McDonald, uh, born in Oregon, you know. So there is a definite connection. Uh, Some people think that uh, the Pacific Ocean is an obstacle. But uh, Ronald's case, to him, it was a link. The elders had stories and legends about their ancestors coming on boats from the West. The stories handed down from one generation to the next that perhaps this is where we came from. When he got his... uh, late teens, early 20s, he was kind of captured by this idea that, wow, you know, maybe we came from that place. He believed it and he wanted to go find out for himself. He landed uh, on July 2nd, this is 1848, at an island called Bishiri, which is a tiny island far north of Japan. He pretended to be shipwrecked, so he tried to sort of sink his boat and uh, hoped that people on shore, because he could see a little village and he saw some smoke, he hoped that they would come out and and, uh, help him out, and they did. 
I think he was expecting to be met mainly by Japanese in the beginning, but of course it was an island that was mainly occupied by the Ainu, who are the original inhabitants of northern Japan. He wrote that he felt as though he had met some pirates, he said, because they had heavy beards and uncombed long hair and unwashed faces. Uh, they had tattoos on their mouths and their bodies. They looked quite wild to him. They put sandals on his feet and led him up this very rocky shore. Then they led him to their village, which was a plain, simple wooden houses. They treated Randall very well. He mentions in his writing, he said, I shall ever gratefully remember their Samaritan kindness. And he describes them as being very gentle. In a way, they were sort of like uh, the Native Americans in North America. And the Ainu at that time were very much under the control of the Japanese. And uh, they basically had to do what the Japanese told them. They had to report any shipwrecked sailors or anything like that to a Japanese fort on the main island of Hokkaido, which is a very, very large island. The Japanese uh, soldiers, they came to Dishiri Island and they captured Rand and then they took him to their fort. From that point on, he was always a prisoner in Japan. Uh, but he became very good friends with one Japanese man he met there called Tangaro. And uh, he tried to teach Tangaro some English in exchange for learning some Japanese. And he began to create a uh, vocabulary list, which was a very brave thing to do because it was illegal for foreigners to learn Japanese. And it was illegal for Japanese to teach foreigners their language. When he was in this fort near Wakanai, he uh, was interrogated uh, many times. And all the things he had brought with him were very carefully uh, listed and examined. And uh, the Japanese, of course, were fascinated by the things that he had brought with him including some clothes made of wool, because Japanese in those days did not have wool. Randall wrote that uh, he was much bigger than everyone else. He says that he felt like a giant. He wouldn't have been very overweight. You know, he was only 24, but he would have been very solid and very powerful. Once he was in Nagasaki, the Japanese, they realized that he was very valuable to them because they needed to learn English. They heard from Chinese traders that the Europeans were colonizing other countries in the area. They knew what uh, Spain and Portugal were doing in uh, Asia. They knew that the Philippines was being colonized by the Spanish. And the official interpreters in Japan, they only knew mainly Dutch and Chinese because those were the only countries that were allowed to trade with Japan directly. They, they realized that he was very intelligent <laughs> and very well educated. They realized that, that he could teach English. 
And I think he was very friendly. He always made friends with everyone wherever he went. Uh, he was like a gift to the Japanese interpreters in Nagasaki. And uh, a, a gift to Japan in a way. <laughs> so many of these interpreters would go every day to visit him in his jail and to learn English from him. And at least one of them, whose name is Moriyama Enosuke, he was the official interpreter when Commodore Perry arrived in Japan in 1853, and Japan was officially forced to be open to the world. And Moriyama had learned his English uh, largely from Ranald in Nasaki. Many of the American Navy people, when they landed in Japan in 1853, wondered how Moriyama could speak such good English. And the secret was that he had learned it from Ranald MacDonald. Some of the interpreters that he taught English to, they were responsible indirectly for saving Japan from the fate of China and the Philippines and Vietnam and Indonesia and so forth and so on, because Japan was able to remain independent. And that's how most people in Japan today think of Ronald Donald. They think of him as the first English teacher in Japan. When he was deported from Japan, he was deported on an American naval ship, which really came to get some other American shipwrecked sailors. He went to Hong Kong and then he was in Australia. And then, you know, he, he made his way to Europe through India and somehow makes it back to the United States. And he does go home to visit his, his family in Canada. Towards the end of his life, when he was nearly 70, he was living in an area that was filled with Native Americans and also with half Native Americans and half uh, Scottish or half French. One of his nieces named Jenny Lynch, he used to uh, visit her quite regularly, I think, but her husband died and he went to visit her. And when he was visiting her in her cabin, uh, he passed away. She apparently said that, he said at the very end, his last words were, uh, sayonara, <laughs> sayonara, my dear. So it's, it's like farewell, you know, but Japanese, you know. He's in the middle of a, you know, a, a wilderness area. You know, he's surrounded by Native Americans and, you know, cowboy miners. And, you know, here he is. He's dying and he says, sayonara, my dear.